Hi, I'm Frank Tissia Burns, and this is 360 North. Caribou and bok choy stew. Not what's on your typical menu in the North, where fresh produce is rare and very expensive. Countless studies all show pretty much the same thing. The North has the highest rates of food insecurity in Canada. Nunavut has the highest rate of food insecurity for any indigenous population living in a developed country in the world. About 60% of the territory's kids live in food insecure households. But Corey Ellis thinks he can help. Ellis is the CEO and co-founder of The Grocer, a company that retrofits old shipping containers with a hydroponic growing system to create a year-round indoor garden. I asked him how he thought these systems would fit in with a traditional northern diet. Corey, thanks for taking the time to come in and chat with me today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Pleasure. So the first time I heard about you and the grocer was at the Northern Lights Conference this year. So to start off, I'm going to open with a clip from the Q&A from after that session and uh, maybe just get a reaction from you afterwards and we'll go from there. Food security is now. It you have access to food. And in new food security comes with bowling written on the side. I would like to challenge people in the room and our panel to get their feedback on the differences between food security and what I believe the future needs is food sovereignty. So obviously, this guy was mentioning the difference between those two ideas, food security versus food sovereignty. And so how do you how do you see that difference between both? Yeah, you know, so first of all, I think food security is a much more complex, comprehensive kind of challenge that needs to be addressed. So it involves everything from socioeconomic status and people's inability to afford food um, uh, all the way through to, you know, making sure that traditional food sources, culturally relevant food sources are available and uh, can be sustained over time. Whereas, you know, the way I see food sovereignty is more about the ability for communities to have some kind of uh, decision-making power on their food system, but also mm-hmm. an ability to control and determine what they want for their community from a food perspective and be able to actually do that in a way that's sustainable. So I would say food so- sovereignty is a lot easier to achieve than overall food security in my mind. Okay. You know, especially because solutions around food sovereignty are often just around food production. They, of course, feed into food security in the sense that, you know, more accessibility and more availability of food is, is always a good thing. Um, but food security would involve, you know, poverty reduction measures and it would involve cooking classes and making sure people actually know how to prepare foods with the food that is available. So it it's kind of a, a stepping stone in my mind. Uh, you know, it's not a be all end all, but mm-hmm. certainly achieving food sovereignty would give power to communities and put kind of the decision making power in their hands to determine what they want for themselves. Part of that food sovereignty is economic and keeping whatever money that's being invested uh, in the communities from thereafter. And that's something that you had mentioned during the conference panel as well, uh, is that economic leakage that is going on right now in some of these northern communities. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how the grocer's model helps against it. Yeah, you know, northern communities have always, um, or have always, since northern communities were kind of introduced to the uh, more southern way of living in communities and cities and whatnot, They've always, the model has always been for them to be dependent on the South. Um, that's kind of how the power dynamics have always been. Um, so in terms of economic leakage, that's always kind of been a reality. There have been a few models that have kind of counteracted that. The co-op model being one of them where, you know, the community owns the business, 
it's a community managed business and all the money is reinvested in that community, right? From, uh, you know, infrastructure spending all the way to wages to, you know, the decision-making again at the community level. Um, from a modeling point of view, when we designed the grocer, it was really about trying to figure out how to maximize that the same way the co-op model does, mm -hmm. whether or not the community wanted a co-op business for their grocer system. So we weren't going to restrict certainly what they were able to do, but our model was, you know, if we're able to maximize the amount of dollars that people spend that are dollars that are then recirculating in the local economy, we knew that there'd be trickle down effects of everything that we would do. So economic leakage is not just that that money is gone, but it can't continue to kind of have impact. Yeah, Whereas yeah. if you've got a recirculating local economy, you're able to use that money over and over again to do bigger and better things. Just to expand a little bit, how does the grocer's model of being, you know, these, these physical containers in communities, how does that help uh, that reinvestment in those communities? Well, I think, first of all, it allows them to grow food that they've never been able to grow before. So if you think about it, you know, food is this necessity for, for life, right? Everybody's got to eat and everybody has to spend money on food every week, no matter what, if they're able to, of course. But, but that's kind of the premise is that uh, it's kind of this, this basic need that everybody has. Um, if communities are able to control their entire supply chain and do everything from the seed all the way to the produce that's being sold on the shelf, and they control that and they have the ability to make money on that, opposed to the model of Southern farmers in California or Mexico doing the same thing and making the margin and then the food kind of going through 25 or 30 hands before it reaches the community. So the difference in between what's currently done and kind of the grocer's model is that, you know, the vast majority of the money that's spent on the lettuce that a grocer operator would grow, most of that's going to stay in the community versus, you know, no matter who the retailer is, there's still somebody that's a producer and then there's a wholesaler and mm -hmm. there's shipping companies involved. And so there are a lot of middlemen before that item gets on the shelf. And so the percentage of that dollar that actually ends up being reinvested is, is lower for sure. Um, this is a bit of a, a throwaway question, but why shipping containers? Like why was that what you guys fell on or, to, or decided to use? So we were working in Ijaluit in 2014 and that's really the premise for what started this whole business. We, we didn't go in with the idea for grocer. We didn't even go in with the idea of food. We went up to the north wanting to learn from northerners what they wanted for themselves. And this was actually an idea that a bunch of northerners came up with on their own that really? we kind of okay. accelerated. It was originally, the premise was, well, there's a ton of sea cans on the beach in Ijalari, right, that are not being used, uh, that some people are using as makeshift shelters. And wouldn't it be great if we turn this unvaluable asset or asset that has very little worth that people are just throwing away and turning it into something valuable. So that was the original premise. We were actually looking at making small temporary homes out of them, realized that that okay. was not going to be possible for many reasons, but it was, again, responsive to what community members wanted, which was more affordable housing, especially for you know marginalized members of the community. Uh, when we realized we really couldn't effectively address that problem then we kind of looked at what else we could do with this retrofitting kind of process we had thought of and uh and a bunch of people had been working on a project for an aquaponic farm in, in the town so we started working with them and had some conversations we um you know over time split ways but you know the, the project continued on both sides and uh, we decided to go with hydroponic farming because it was a bit easier to do and we saw more long-term potential there 
but I guess it blossomed. We found 20 things that would not work for a container. <laughs> and then the final thing that we fell on was this, this idea for a farm and, and it did work really well. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess those, this would probably be a good time uh, maybe to give a quick overview of system. Yeah. So what we do is that we take a shipping container that's a 40 foot reefer container. So these are containers that typically ship food. We then retrofit the inside to be a hydroponic farm. So hydroponics are a process of giving plants really the three things that they need to grow. It's uh, water with nutrients in it, lights, and CO2. And if you give those things to plants in the right quantities at the right times, and you optimize the growing environment, plants will be really happy and grow really fast. So what we do is that we essentially have an Arctic entryway with all the mechanical room and everything technical that's required, and then a large grow room where we have 1,800 plants growing at any one time. Uh, the whole thing's automated, which makes it really easy for people who've never harvested or been a farmer before. Mm -hmm. So that's really the premise was it's got to be something that when it shows up, very easy to install. You really can't mess it up, even if you tried, and it's got to work. And so that's where we had to build everything with industrial equipment. Everything has to be stainless. All of that has to go into it. It's more expensive, but you end up with a system that you know, will last 30 years uh, and be a viable business for someone. Is that actually the life expectancy? Is it 30 years? Yeah, yeah. Different components of different life expectancies. But what we build with our customers is a business plan that involves them upgrading their equipment over time. Uh, okay. Because about every five to seven, maybe nine years, LED technology is progressing so fast, for example, that it would be worth the investment to put down money and save on your power bill, uh, stuff like that. And then, you know, pumps are not going to last 30 years, but those are small things to swap out. Everything is, uh, uh, there's no direct wiring required. So if you have a pump burnout, every customer actually has a spare part of everything in the system. So it's just a matter of unplugging and plugging back in a new pump. And so really all of that was designed that way. But if, as long as they put away their, you know, maintenance allocation, quote unquote, as we recommend they do, then they've got money set aside at any time should they want to upgrade. And you guys have, is it seven of these in place right now? Is that right? We actually installed our eighth in Ottawa, okay. but it's our first Southern system, which is pretty exciting. And it'll be growing for a university here in town. So The first six were in Alaska. I guess I'm just wondering why start there? We actually partnered with an Alaskan firm to do this. Okay. So they were based in Anchorage, uh, which was great because they were Northerners, you know, back to this whole idea that you need Northerners kind of leading the way and being in charge of local decisions. That sure. was kind of an important element. Um, but they ended up developing a few pieces of the technology that uh, really helped us get there quickly. So we ended up licensing part of our technology from them. So they were the first to kind of get to market and get this out there. It you know helps that they have a road system. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you don't have to wait till July every year to get stuff up. They can just ship it out. Um, in fact, one of their customers even paid to fly it in. Oh, wow. Uh, so they had a freight plane loaded up with a container and flew it into the community. We had no customers that were willing to charter a flight. Yeah. So, <laughs> and it's much more expensive in Canada. So all that to say, um, the first six were a really good proving ground for the technology to really nail it down. And because they're road accessible, it was a great low risk trial. Whereas if we had our first farm in Halloween and something went wrong in the middle of the winter, uh, it's very, very cold, often much colder than in Alaska. And how do you get there uh, without paying through the nose for uh, for air freight? Mm -hmm. So we're down to the fourth generation of our system, and we're really happy where with it where it is right now in terms of reliability and and how rugged it is. And now we are able to go to the places where we intended to go at first, which was the very remote, high need communities that really have 
food issues. So six there. And then there's one in Churchill, Manitoba. Churchill, Manitoba, yeah. Okay. Hydroponics is not, it's not really a new technology. So why do you think it's taken this long to get that technology up to the north? The north is a very expensive place to do business. Yeah. And so I think it took this time for hydroponics to get to a place where the technology was well-known enough and reliable enough that people could design around it knowing or having seen southern operations do it commercially. So I think you kind of have to do it in the south. Technology has to get to a certain place where there's an efficiency of cost. So you know, hydroponics are such a widespread industry now that you can go anywhere and buy hydroponic equipment and it's really affordable. Uh, so there's that and then pair that with new LED technology that makes power use really efficient. You know, for example, the lights we use in our systems only use electricity to output a certain spectrum of light that the plant needs to grow. Okay. So there are certain parts of the light spectrum that are completely useless to a plant. And so if you put power into turning the light on in that spectrum, you're essentially just burning cash. Uh, so now that they've been able to develop these kind of specific spectrum LEDs, it makes sense now at 70, 50, whatever price per kilowatt hour that the communities in Nunavut are faced with. So those two factors, and then pair that with you know, the right partnerships that we had and Alaskan growers that had 12 years of experience growing uh, in the north, uh, all of that made for a really good platform to build on. Uh, it doesn't come without growing pains for sure as we kind of build out this organization, but you know, it's really kind of cool to be the first to do this. It's it's really awesome. You know, the, the one of the farms in Alaska is known as the first permanent farm north of the Arctic Circle. So it's the only place in the world where 24-7 you're able to buy produce from it, right? So um, I'm not going to lie. When I first heard about it, I was pretty skeptical. Not skeptical in the sense of the technology wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. More so skeptical in the sense that it's another kind of top-down approach to bringing new technology and kind of telling people in the North how they should get their food. Yeah, I'm wondering how you respond to that a little bit, because I think it, it is somewhat of a valid criticism. And you'd mentioned, you know, we recommend doing these things for growers and you help with a business plan. But coming back to the food sovereignty aspect of it, I guess, how do you manage that? Yeah, you know, it's always a challenge because traditionally the North has always subsisted on the land, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to be quite honest with you, this is always kind of the tension that exists in our business because Naturally, we want to support Northerners in doing what they want to be doing. And a lot of that involves traditional hunting, fishing, you know, living off the land like they've done for millennia. And then you kind of are confronted with the idea that population is growing in the North and many people are living lifestyles of, of you know, Southerners uh, in the sense that they live in cities. There may not be a hunter in the family. And how do they subsist themselves? So all that to say, I think what we're looking to do is figure out how we can support Northerners to be more resilient and, you know, autonomous. Um, but it's not a be all end all. You know, I don't think hydroponics is going to feed every Northerner mm -hmm. and I don't think it's the solution for everything, but I think it's a part of a broader solution that involves, you know, supporting land on the land activities. And it's a part of a solution that involves maintaining cultural traditions, you know, four decades from now, how do we ensure that young Inuit children that are growing up know what caribou tastes like and how to prepare it, right? All these things need to be maintained and need to be thriving. Um, I kind of compare my lived experience as a Franco-Ontarian to that of, of Inuit in the North. You know, by no means are they minorities in Nunavut, but they're minorities in Canada. And how do they create a culture that they can be, that they can put on a pedestal and be proud of so that generations from now, you know, that continues living on. So 
it's a long-winded way of saying there's no easy answer to this stuff. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it you know there are some amazing northern leaders that will you know bring the territory and and Inuit culture to a place that you know will sustain for more generations to come. But that said, you know there are always kind of opportunities, even just as you know you look at the demographic trends, more southerners are coming up to work in Nunavut. Maybe that the solution there is just to for Inuit to own the business that feeds southerners. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. And that's not such a bad thing. So, you know, I think as long as we're careful and we're not trying to impose Southern ways of thinking or, you know, let's say, impose our lifestyles on on Northerners, then there are still ways for, for us to have benefit to these communities without kind of superseding what already is in place there. So it's just kind of being aware of that and uh, knowing our place and the limitations of our technology. So, you know, as we grow this organization, I was mentioning earlier, there are challenges when you go from a team of two to a team of 12 that we are today. And one of the big things that we're trying to maintain is this culture of active listening and of trying to get feedback on what we're doing and always trying to build on this idea that, you know, Northerners have the best sense of what will work in their communities. And if we just took the time to listen, we could probably figure some stuff out much faster than if we try to take this approach that we know best. And there are a few things that we're doing that, you know, involve a lot more traditional activities that uh, I think will help promote more culture than growing lettuce and uh, basil, right, in the north. I guess in line with that, lettuce and basil are not traditional country foods. So where do you see the role for country food um, kind of intersect with your system? And I've got something else I wanted to touch on, but I'll get your answer to that first. Sure. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) northerners, you actually look at the data, they eat very little lettuce, as you can probably imagine. (laughs) So lettuce is not actually, you know, an item that grows... Um, or, or sells very well, even though it grows extremely well in our systems. So we've opted to do kind of market studies and whatnot with with our local markets and do a lot of trials on what people might think is interesting. And uh, we found that stuff like Asian greens are actually some of the most promising produce items. So I think the reason for that is that people are more familiar with preparing stews and just the kind of kitchen skills that are required for that. And the Asian greens tend to pair well with traditional foods. So we've heard that some folks are doing caribou stew with kale or caribou stew with bok choy. And that's interesting because from a caloric point of view and a nutrition point of view, it's good to always add stuff like the Asian greens. They're, they're good for you. And you pair that with country food that's also um, you know, high in vitamins and high in good fats and all that stuff. And together they make a really great meal. So, you know, again, it's, we're not trying to, or we have to be careful not to repeat mistakes of the past and try to erase culture, Mm -hmm. right. And try to have a colonial mindset on, on how things should be done. But it's about figuring out, you know, is there some way of adapting the diet over time so that you still retain everything that you value about your culture, but there's some like a modern twist to it. Um, And it's important to remember too, that diets evolve all the time, right? They're not these static things that have to be a certain way forever. You know, you look at Bannock and mm-hmm. you know, Bannock is seen as traditional, I would say, or, or more traditional certainly than, than lettuce, but that was introduced by the, by the traders that came up. There's no flour certainly available in the Arctic before that. So, you know, there are these opportunities to bridge the gap or the divide. And I think um, ultimately we're going to grow it, what people will buy. You mentioned just bridging the gap between country food and the type of food that you're, you're growing, but I'm wondering, have you met any resistance from Northerners so far who don't want to bridge that gap, who don't see it as an invasion necessarily, but who see it as um, 
coming to try and change something that really doesn't need to be changed. For sure. For sure. And I think you're right. I don't think it's seen as a, you know, an aggressive thing that their culture is being taken over in any way. You know, I think it's just that they value their traditional lifestyle. That's something that they've grown up always doing and they want to pass that on to their children and their grandchildren. So I think it has a lot of merit and I don't think it's our place to kind of impede on that. Um, you know, everybody has their own preferences and some people will enjoy bok, bok choy with their caribou and other people will not want mm -hmm. bok choy anywhere near their caribou, right? So, um, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. The, you know, this stuff is not easy and it, there's a lot of emotion in it as well. Everybody kind of connects with their food, right? Like it's one of those things that we can all relate to. And, and so it's, it's going to be something that involves, again, a lot of listening and making sure that we, you know, we take a, a measured approach to this. It can't be something we try to do too fast and too quickly because we would hate to stumble on something as important as this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How much is it for one of your units if someone in the community is looking uh, into buying one? The base price for our systems is 180000 Okay. And usually a full project in Nunavut, somewhere around the 240 mark, okay. because it involves shipping up a container, prepping land, plugging it into power, all of that. And so, yeah, landed costs and a full project is just under 240 usually. And we actively support our customers because that's a bit inaccessible to many people. So we support them in trying to find funding or financing for to get started. Um, and so far, in fact, none of our customers have paid more than 50% of the total project cost. So they'll get some support from government. They'll get some support from friends and family, perhaps. And, you know, the rest, we help them find financing and make a case to their local financial institution or one of the chartered banks to support them in doing this. So usually people pay back their entire investment within about a couple of years because okay. they're getting some support to uh, get started. And, you know, we don't make a ton of money on this stuff. Really, the goal that we have is more long term. It's figuring out, OK, how can we support our customers so that a year or two down the road, they come back and want to buy a second. Their business is growing. And as a result, our business can grow alongside it. I mean, that's one of the things that I was wondering about when you're looking at demographics in Nunavut and, and average incomes, more than 80% are Inuit. Mm -hmm. And the average Inuit income is like 20,000. Yeah. So how do you market an expensive project really to, to these people? Like who gets interested by this? Yeah, I think it's when we look at people, it's kind of attitude first. It's it's tough to find people who are, you know, willing to make that kind of or take that kind of risk. But certainly we found like some amazing like gems, you know, that are unpolished that over time, you know, become these amazing business owners that really, you know, support their communities and do amazing things for people. So we try to reduce as many barriers as possible. When you look at the rest of the world, by the way, you know, agriculture is usually the first investment that lifts people out of poverty. So it's not to say that necessarily that model would apply directly to Nunavut, but if we inspire ourselves from what we're learning from how to build local economies in developing nations, we can kind of learn from what's working. And income is one thing, but more important is giving people the skills so that they can do this and then their children will learn from it. And over span of decades and generations, you see like a building up of the entire economy and then wages follow, right? Once people have education and are able to see value in and stuff like this. You know, Nunavut's a very young territory mm -hmm. and it will take time to build an economic base that, you know, means that uh, Nunavut's managing wealth and all communities can participate in the broader Canadian economy. I'd love to be, you know, in my lifetime, see Nunavut 
starting to think really big and, and becoming really ambitious about their future and thinking, how do Nunavut entrepreneurs access global markets? And that's starting to happen with a lot of arts and crafts and tourism. Mm -hmm. But what about high tech areas? And what about all these emerging sectors in the global economy that we're well positioned to participate in as Canadians and compete in globally? So I think if we saw that in our generations where young entrepreneurs who you know, are coming out of school in Nunavut are now building global businesses and, you know, really thinking big about their future. That's a really exciting place to be. And it's not an either or. They can still go out on the land, you know, during hunting season and go out and do all that. Part of what was discussed at the conference was obviously Nutrition North. So maybe just to start off, can you give a little bit of an overview of what that program is and how it relates to what you're doing? So Nutrition North is a federal subsidy for food for about 120 some odd communities that are considered to be remote. But essentially the government of Canada spends about $60 million a year helping Northerners uh, reduce their grocery bills in certain key areas, particularly fresh produce, stuff that people need as necessities. And they do that on a per kilogram basis. So depending on how much it weighs, because air freight is by kilogram, mm -hmm. there's a dollar per kilogram discount that the retailers subscribe to. So if they sell fresh produce, then they get a certain rebate from government. And the idea is that they could pass those savings on to communities. That's how the program is designed currently. But it's really, when you think of it, a bit of a fuel subsidy because the produce that's grown locally is not eligible for any type of discounts. But if you grow it in a farm in Ontario and you put it on a plane and you ship it to Nunavut, then it is. So it's a bit of a reality with the business we're in is that we need to have our produce be able to compete with produce that is getting government subsidies. So it's a challenge, but it's not uh, it's not a challenge that can't be overcome. So it's certainly just kind of a, a reality of, of what's going on. I know the, the government is reviewing the program, and that often takes time because they're trying to do it right and get input from all northern communities that are in the program or could become eligible for the program. And that's a lot of people to get input from and consult the policy aside, there's just not, there's not a very big budget, $60 million no. when you're talking about all these communities and, you know, the tens of thousands of Canadians that live in them. It's very little money on a per person basis. Yeah, and yeah. so there's only so much they can do. They can redesign the policy all they want, but ultimately we need to find better ways of creating kind of a long-term plan to address all those challenges that doesn't involve credits or I would, you know, even go so far as to call them kind of band-aid solutions. Do you think the program would need a bit of a redesign in the sense that it would subsidize local growers as opposed to the cost that it takes to get that food up there? Yeah, I think when I'm asked that, it's tough because obviously, you know, I would love for our customers to earn a bit more money and they work really hard for it. But at the same time, we don't really need it. You know, the, the credits would you know, help people who can't afford the produce. But at the same time, often the, the, the families that can't afford food are not the ones going out and buying arugula. Yeah. So I think that the program needs to be designed holistically where you're looking at all the facets. And again, if you're thinking about this program as wanting to help address the food security challenge, you have to recognize that, uh, you know, there are broader challenges than just the price of food. In my mind, at least, it has to target the most economically challenged households first. And then if there's resources left over, then kind of uh, spread that to the rest of, of communities. Now, it's it's not just going to be a larger injection of cash into this pool of money that's going to solve things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's got to be done with the mindset that whatever is being proposed needs to have a path towards becoming self-sustaining one day. And that's where 
stuff like local business could play a part in that, whether they're growing food or whether they, you know, there's ways of supporting hunters to, you know, afford to go out on the land and pay for gas and repair their snow machines. So it, and it's tough because, you know, there is that divide between the Southern capitalist model of, you know, this needs to make economic sense and the Northern model, which has always been of subsistence yeah. and bartering and families supporting themselves and the entire community being kind of one cohesive unit. In, uh, in the successful project so far, have you had a side-by-side comparison of what the price is for a head of lettuce grown in one of your systems versus a head of lettuce that was shipped up from Ontario, let's say? Churchill, for example, head of lettuce when I went up when we were installing the system was something like seven fifty. Okay. I think the subsidy program was applied shortly after that and it came down slightly. But nonetheless, without subsidy, the heads of lettuce that we're currently growing are selling for five ninety nine. And so, you know, with the cost of production that we have now, it's it's pretty competitive where we feel as though, you know, if we're able to get an initial business off the ground selling the produce at uh, five ninety nine then as the business grows, there's an economy of scale there that they are able to bring that price down, right? Like I said, it's if you're paying back your initial investment in a couple of years, you know, you've got money to put into perhaps a second system or commercial kitchen facility. Um, you know, maybe you could start processing other foods like country foods and making that available more widely to more people who don't have a, a hunter in their family. So if we put the tools in their hands, they'll figure out what to do mm-hmm. with them, what actual product to grow how to pair that with certain things, how to market it to their local community. But uh, we often don't come up with the ideas. Like the bok choy <laughs> idea is not ours, you know, but, you know, now that it's working well for some people, we're telling people that that might be something they should try. What are the next locations that you guys are looking at? There's a handful for the summer. Okay. Um, and I, I don't want to steal their thunder. So I'm going to let them kind of announce it when they're, they're ready. So I'll leave that broad. Yeah, yeah. Let Sounds you fill good. in the, the gaps. <laughs> Um, to finish off, you mentioned doing some consultation before launching the project. Part of the central question to this show is what do you know about the North? So I'm wondering what is something that you learned throughout that consultation that you weren't expecting? Mm-hmm. I'll start with something I, w- I was kind of expecting and then maybe okay. you think of something that, that was, was a surprise. A recurring theme in all of these consultations was always that youth had to be prioritize. And okay. that, that was something both important to the communities and that this was something that they saw as a really critical piece that had to be prioritized. So in Churchill, they've got a youth program where they're flying up youth from the dozen or so communities south of Churchill. They're bringing them up to Churchill to do education on wildlife and all of that, but also food and nutrition and you know how to prepare stuff. And it, it's really cool because it starts at the grassroots level, right? So the businesses that are starting up are giving back in that way. Um, maybe something uh, not surprising per se, but something really interesting and that that still makes me think really hard is, is this challenge that communities have of trying to find a, a marriage between their traditional kind of ways of knowing and this new Southern way of thinking that mm-hmm. has been thrown at them in the last 60 years. And that's a tough one because it involves like the culture piece. It involves economy and how they even see economic activity and how they perceive whether business is good or bad or, you know, what, what can be done about it. It involves education and whether the education system that exists today is designed and is, is serving uh, Northern youth in a way that 
is productive? Um, all those questions are, are really tough. And it's something that, you know, people would bring up and have some ideas around, but, but there's always the question that government asks and that, you know, funders always ask is, well, how is it economically sustainable? And that's kind of a, a antithesis to the whole idea that, you know, they should be promoting culture because that's inherently good. And there should be no need to make that self-sustaining in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there is that reality where everybody needs to justify why are we spending money on this? Th- those are just challenges that, that kind of are, are glaring and, and uh, really tough to, to, uh, to face, I suppose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, my pleasure. One quick note. Uh, Since our last conversation, I actually got in touch with Corey again for an update. And he said they're sending a unit to Kugluktuk in Nunavut and another to Kujwak in Nunavik. And uh, with that, that's it for this episode of 360 North. As always, I'd love to get your feedback. And to do that, you can send me an email or also leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, you can subscribe in iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like this show and feel like you can go the extra mile, we'd love to have your support on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash T-H-R-E-E-6-0-N. Of course, links to all of that are going to be in the show notes. Music for 360 North was written by Simone Leger, and the sound is courtesy of JP and Pop-Up Podcasting. See you in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm.